Hey, Moonshot listeners, it's Chris here. I wanted to share with you episode three of our podcast series, Supercharged. It's an investigative series exploring power, conflict, and the people who are driving change. It is by far the most comprehensive show that we've ever made. And in season one, we investigate Tesla and how the company is forcing change across the entire automotive space. I hope you've enjoyed the previous two episodes that we've posted. And if you'd like to listen to the rest of the series, it's available right now. Just search for Supercharged in your favorite podcast app. I'll also include a link in the show notes. So here is episode three of Supercharged. So do you you want to see the car? Yeah! Well, we don't have it for you tonight. I'm just kidding, of course. It's April Fool's somewhere. All right, let's bring him out. It's March 31st, 2016, and Tesla CEO Elon Musk is standing in front of a crowd at the Tesla Design Studio in Hawthorne, California, and he's there to reveal the company's new vehicle, the Model 3. So what do you think? You like the car? The Tesla Model 3 launch was one of the most important days for the company. Since the original Roadster, Tesla's strategy has been to produce vehicles for the early adopters at the top end of the market, the people who might be willing to spend $100,000 or even $200,000 on a car, and then they work down to the everyday consumer. And the Model 3 was Tesla's opportunity to reach that mass market. So Elon made sure to thank everyone that helped Tesla get to this moment in time. So the S and the X are what pay for that Model 3 development. So I just want to say for all of you who bought an an S or an X, thank you for helping pay for the Model 3. The Model 3 was designed to be more of a people's car. It had some of the iconic Tesla features like autopilot as standard, 215 miles of range and could fit a family of five. And Elon wanted to make sure that it had a price tag to match that ambition. And uh, and then in terms of price, well, of course, it'll be $35,000. And I want to emphasize, I want to emphasize that the, the, even if you buy no options at all, this will still be an amazing car. You will not be able to buy a better car for $35,000 or even close, even if you, if you get no options. People wanting to buy a Model 3 were able to line up outside Tesla stores ahead of the announcement and place a $1,000 US dollar deposit to reserve their place in queue. And online reservations opened an hour before the launch, leading to a huge number of people putting their name on the list for an order before they'd even seen the vehicle. And um, this is this is kind of crazy, but I, I just learned, uh, just told that. Um, The total number of orders for the Model 3 in the past 24 hours has now passed 115,000. So, 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 thank thank you, that's a lot, yeah. Thank you to everyone that that ordered the car. Um, We love you. 
just two days later, on the 2nd of April 2016, Musk tweeted that there had been 180,000 reservations for the Model 3, and that the future of electric vehicles looked bright. He then updated that count to 198,000, and recommended people place their orders as the wait time was growing rapidly. He then followed up with another tweet that said, quote, definitely going to need to rethink production planning. By mid-April of 2016, the company already had close to 400,000 reservations, cementing Model 3 as a definite success for the company. If they could get them delivered. From Lawson Media, this is Supercharged, a show about power, conflict, and the people who are driving change. I'm Christopher Lawson, and this season we're exploring electric vehicles and how Tesla is forcing the entire automotive industry to move towards an electric future. This is episode three, Production Hell. Why are we making electric cars? Uh, Why does it matter? The mission of Tesla is to accelerate the advent of renewable energy. Tesla thinks of itself as a tech company, if not as much as, then even more than a car company. They designed the Model 3 to be simple to manufacture. If you're going through hell, keep going. Elon's coming down, he's checking our work. Everybody was just really afraid when he would come into the tent. It's financially insane to buy anything other than a Tesla. The huge interest in the Model 3 placed significant pressure on Tesla and CEO Elon Musk to find a way to scale their production. It also highlighted to other manufacturers that the mass market was ready for an EV. Less than a month after the Model 3 announcement, a Bloomberg news story said that Ford had paid a $55,000 premium to get their hands on a Founders Edition Model X so they could examine the vehicle in detail. Tesla was already in a race to produce a mass-market EV, with the Model 3 being a clear competitor to the Nissan Leaf, which was first released in 2010, and the Chevy Bolt, which was due to release in late 2016. And the Model 3 launch firmly cemented Tesla as a serious contender. In Q2 of 2016, Tesla delivered just 14,402 vehicles. 9,764 Model S and 4,638 Model X. During the same time, they produced 18,345 vehicles, about 2,000 a week. Well short of the production capacity needed, especially if they were going to add the Model 3 to that lineup. Tesla's quarterly update letter said, quote, The Model 3 capacity expansion will reflect our initial efforts to apply our machine-that-makes-the-machine philosophy to vehicle manufacturing and demonstrates our intense focus on volumetric and capital efficiency. Basically, we were in production hell for the first six months this year. I mean, man, it was hell. This is CEO Elon Musk speaking on Tesla's Q2 earnings call in August of 2016. And then we just managed to sort of climb out of hell in like basically part way through June. Um, and now we're, you know, we're, the production line is humming. Um, and our, you know, suppliers mostly have their shit together. There's a few that don't. Uh, one I'm going to be visiting on Saturday. Um, personally to figure out what the hell's going on there, but we'll we'll solve it. 
A large portion of this 2016 call covers how Tesla is trying to scale their production. Although if Elon thought that the first six months of 2016 were hard, he had perhaps underestimated the huge challenge ahead. I mean, just like the, the thing that's crazy hard about cars is that there's several thousand unique items and you move as fast as the slowest, um, the slowest item in the whole car. Um, so, um, yeah, but that's it. Like, production is, is, like, it feels like we're, I'm like, I'm not losing sleep at night, literally, um, because of production issues right now. This Q2 2016 call is very clear evidence that Tesla's production problems didn't begin with the Model 3. In fact, Tesla has struggled with production going back to the original Roadster. Just headed to the Menlo store because I wanted to do a car-by-car walkthrough. I wanted to get a, basically a rundown of each car. What's its status and what are the issues? And I'm going to do this every week. This is a clip from the documentary Revenge of the Electric Car. The film follows the early development of several electric vehicles, and the filmmaker Chris Payne was able to record Elon inspecting some of the original roadsters, which Tesla was struggling to get out the door. Holy mackerel. Jesus. Yeah, like, we have, like, an army of cars here. Like... Jesus. I'm looking like we're going to be able to deliver four cars to the sales team. This is frightening. Right now we're facing an issue which is that it's a sort of a crisis of confidence among our customers where you can only tell them delay so, so many times and then they start to think, man, is this company ever right. going to get me a car? This is my car. <laughs> this is your car? Yeah. This is actually your car? Yeah, no kidding. Number 23, right? Number 23? Yes, it's number 23. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, you've heard the explanation now. Um, <laughs> So I guess hopefully it'll have a powertrain tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, it's a nice. I was just thinking actually, it's a nice choice of colors. Moving forward to the Model S, in 2015, Consumer Reports issued a statement based on 1,400 survey responses, many which complained of reliability issues with the Model S. Consumer Reports updated their rating on the vehicle and issued a statement saying. From that data, we forecast that owning that Tesla is likely to involve a worse-than-average overall problem rate. The Model X also suffered from problems, which Elon said was due to integrating too much advanced technology into the vehicle too early, leading Consumer Reports to issue a recommendation that said the Model X was, quote, more showy than practical. But the Model 3 was designed to solve the problems of the past, It was meant to be easy to produce at scale, but given the huge volume of reservations Tesla now had to meet, and an over-reliance on trying to build the machine that builds the machines, it didn't take long before things started going wrong. The Model 3 was a really unique case. You know, they designed the Model 3 to be simple to manufacture, but then Elon got really excited about designing the factory of the future, and they they sort of over-automated a lot of the production processes. This is Dana Hull from Bloomberg News. And then late in the game, realized that it wasn't working and went back to relying on manual labor. And if you'll recall, you know, Musk tweeted that that he made a mistake, that the over-reliance on robots and automation was his. And they ended up building another general assembly line in, in a tent, you know, outside of the factory where... Uh, so... So I think that they've sorted out their production issues. Um, you know, they are manufacturing the Model 3 in higher volumes now, but they're nowhere near the volumes that they initially promised. And, you know, Tesla is still sort of learning how to do things like 
worldwide logistics. So right now they ha- they're delivering cars not just in California but all across the United States into Europe and into China as well. So they're just just managing the logistics of getting these cars on ships and on, you know, and on transport trucks and getting them to the locations. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff on social media from customers about I was supposed to take delivery on this date and then my my date was changed. So, you know, I think the company is just going through growing pains in terms of having like a robust internal network of, you know, that can handle delivery and logistics and service um, and sales. And they're kind of growing so rapidly that, you know, they're building the plane while they're flying it in a lot of cases. On July 28, 2017, 16 months after it was first announced, Tesla held an event at their Fremont factory to celebrate the delivery of the first 30 Model 3s. So there, there are many elements that, uh, of the design. It's, uh, it's difficult to actually say exactly um, what makes it good, but except say that we, we agonize over every curve, over every detail, every corner, every element of the interior, the exterior, uh, including things that people probably won't even notice. We, we care about every, every, every part of it. The event was a significant milestone for the company, but it was also just the beginning of the problems Tesla was set to face around Model 3 as it began to scale production. In terms of production, the, the thing that's going to be the, the major challenge for us over the next six to nine months is how do we build a huge number of cars? The, um, I mean, and frankly, we're going to be in production hell. Um, <laughs> welcome, welcome. <laughs> welcome to production hell. Um, that, that's going to be uh, where we are for, for at least six months, maybe longer. Um, but you guys know that you're veterans. Uh, I've been through this. So um, I look forward to working alongside you to <laughs> journey through hell. And uh, <laughs> as the saying goes, if, you, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> the challenges facing the team would be significant. And Elon spoke about the Model 3 production problems in more detail a couple of days later, in August, on the 2017 Q2 earnings call. What we have ahead of us, of course, is uh, an incredibly difficult production ramp. Uh, Nonetheless, I think we've got a great team, and I'm very, very confident that we will be able to reach a production rate of uh, 10,000 vehicles per week uh, towards the end of next year. Um, and we, we remain, uh, we believe, on track to achieve a 5,000 unit week by the end of this year. These numbers sounded ambitious at the time, but Elon assured investors not to pay too much attention to the interim figures, and that Tesla would certainly hit their 10,000 a week target by the end of 2018. When you have an exponentially growing production ramp, Slight changes of a few weeks here or there can appear to have dramatic changes, but that is simply because of the arbitrary uh, nature of the, uh, of the, the when a quarter ends. So, um, but what people should ha- absolutely have zero concern about, I know, zero, is that Tesla will achieve a 10,000 unit production week by the end of next year. During Q3 of 2017, Tesla delivered their 250,000th vehicle and at the same time was struggling to ramp up production on their Model 3. 
Their 2017 Q3 update, released in November, highlights that, quote, the Model 3 production process will be vastly more automated than the production process of Model S, Model X, or almost any other car on the market today. And bringing this level of automation online is simply challenging in the early stages of the ramp. The company also predicted that they'd hit the magic 5,000 per week production capacity for Model 3 towards the end of Q1 2018. Tesla thinks of itself as a tech company, if, if not as much as, then even more than a car company. This is Laura Kolodny. Laura covers Tesla, new vehicle tech and robotics for CNBC.com and has written extensively on Tesla's production problems. When I have interviewed employees through the last few years covering Tesla on a daily beat here, they they say that, you know, Elon Musk is an optimist and kind of a sucker for a beautiful 3D rendering. <laughs> and, um, and he wants to embrace their ideas and vendors' ideas about, again, sophisticated automation. Didn't always work out as planned, I think in part because leadership at the company isn't necessarily uh, full of car car guys and car women, not people from the auto industry, uh, but people from all walks all throughout tech. There are some from the auto industry, but they don't necessarily bring some of the hard-won lessons from other factory experiences into play. They're at the uh, Fremont factory and at the Giga factory, and it, it showed up, you know, uh, he admitted later, right, humans are underrated, but they're still striving for automation. There are other reasons production hits snags as well. As Tesla tried to scale their Model 3, production problems due to the over-reliance on robots became more evident. By February of 2018, Tesla estimated that Model 3 production rates would reach 2,500 by the end of Q1 2018 and 5,000 by the end of Q2, significantly behind schedule. One of the major issues Tesla faced was around their battery assembly line at the Gigafactory, and by the Q1 earnings call in May, Tesla was only producing 2,270 vehicles a week, well short of their estimates. So something had to change. Everybody get ready to meet the demand. We're going to be in production hell. Yes. But you didn't expect this kind of production hell, or did you? Um, no, it's worse than I thought. This is from an interview that CBS presenter Gail King conducted with Elon Musk in April 2018. In it, Elon blames the complexity of new technology in the Model 3, along with robots, as being key hurdles the company had to deal with to scale production. Elon detailed some of the issues further in Tesla's Q1 earnings call on May 2nd. One of the things we've also found is that there's some things that are very well suited to uh, manual operation uh, and something that are very well suited to automated operation and the two should not be confused. Um, so uh, I should be clear that the vast majority of the Tesla production system is automated. However, um, as I mentioned in a tweet uh, a few months ago, uh, we, we did go too far on the automation front and automated some pretty silly things. Elon then details one of these silly problems that the Tesla team had tried to fix with a robot, the placement of a soft fiberglass lining on their battery packs. She, like, so we had red fluffer bot, um, which was really uh, an incredibly difficult 
machines make work. Machines are not good at picking up pieces of fluff. <laughs> human hands are way better at doing that. Um, and uh, so, so we had a super complicated machine um, using a vision system to try to put a piece of fluff on, on the battery pack. That same, that, then I saw, one of the questions I asked was, do we actually need that? So we tested a car with and without and found that there was no, no change in the, uh, the, the noise volume in the, in the cabin. So we actually had a part that was unnecessary um, that uh, was for which the line kept breaking down because Flufferbot would, would frequently just <laughs> fail to pick up the fluff or put it in like a random location. Um, so, so that was, um, that was one of the silliest things I found. As pressure mounted for Tesla to scale their production demands around Model 3, the team realised that they couldn't hit their target without creating a new production line. And that line had to be assembled quickly. So in true startup style, Tesla built a whole new line called GA4 in kind of a giant tent. Here's CNBC's Laura Kludney again. When we talk about GA4, that stands for General Assembly 4, it became colloquially known as the tent, right? Um, one of these short sellers, citizen journalists, spies, you know, um, w- was photographing um, scenes around the factory from the street level and just looking in on what the public could see and sort of surfaced this story that um, Tesla was building a tent because they had to expand capacity. Um, you know, that... That caused, like, a huge amount of interest. How could you do precision manufacturing in the open air like that? There's been fascination around that for a while. Tesla's tent structure was built in a matter of weeks, and it quickly became a vital part of the Model 3 manufacturing line. In Tesla's Q2 update on August 1st of 2018, the company announced they'd hit their 5,000-a-week production capacity for Model 3 vehicles in July. Many people thought the membrane structure would be a temporary solution. However, it became clear that it would be a more permanent fixture. So Laura started looking deeper into how Tesla was producing vehicles in this open-air facility. I got really interested in, you know, several months after that, as the as the tent remained, and it was it was clear that this wasn't just a thing that went up uh, for one season, but was actually, you know, contributing to the volume of Model 3s they could produce. What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? What is it like working in there? Laura was able to speak with a number of employees who worked at the factory and who had roles in the open-air facility. And I do want to be clear. While it is referred to as a tent, it is actually a membrane structure. And there are a number of them which house different elements of the production line, such as quality assurance. I learned that the amount of time they have to complete a single task working this long assembly line uh, was always shrinking, right, over time. So many of them felt they didn't have time to properly complete a task and check that their work was done correctly. There was a lot of burden on automated systems to evaluate, you know, whether this this was torqued in correctly. That was, you know, put in place just so the threading was, you know, aligned. And, you know, that was a universal complaint, right? Like they keep taking seconds off the time. There's so much pressure to produce more cars in less time that we don't we don't have enough time to do this right. And also we're 
We're doing complex physical tasks over and over again, walking with this heavy equipment down the line. It's not like what I expected. What I expected is someone's like practically sitting in a, in a chair or on a stool or something and just kind of like doing light assembly or fixing things into place. And most of the jobs don't sound like that within GA4. There's a good amount of walking up and down the line, fixing things in motion as they roll past, um, slowly, but still, you know. Um, so the time pressure figures, it sounded like an atmosphere of real camaraderie. You know, some people were allowed to listen to music on the job and things you couldn't experience inside the brick, which is, you know, the indoor part of the factory, the much more automated part of the factory. Tesla has a number of different factories around the world, including Gigafactory 1 in Nevada, where the battery packs are made, Gigafactory 2 in Buffalo, New York, where Tesla's solar cells are made, Gigafactory 3, which is being built in Shanghai, and Fremont, where the majority of vehicles are assembled. Laura published her investigation in July 2019 and detailed a number of issues with the GA4 assembly line in Fremont and two of the people willing to go on the record were Carlos and Maggie Aranda. Carlos had been injured on the job in at, just at the end of the year in 2018, and he wasn't sure when he was going to get back on the job, and he had, he had tweeted something about that, you know, like, I you know, was injured on the job, I'm having trouble sussing out my benefits, whatever it was. Huge Tesla fanatic. This guy had been, you know, an employee of the month and other things like that, Um and, you know, he's really enthusiastic about the electric vehicle mission and excited about Tesla, but he was just frustrated in dealing with this injury. My name is Carlos Aranda, um, 42, um, pretty much a family man. I just worked hard all my life and a little bit to my story of Tesla. Carlos grew up in the Bay Area in a small town called Antioch. He's been married for 20 years and has two kids, and in 2017 was working at Walmart earning around $14 an hour. The pay wasn't great, so he was looking around for other opportunities, and at the time he saw an ad that seemed too good to be true. Starting $18 an hour, auto assembly line, uh, no experience needed really, so I applied for it and kind of forgot about it. Uh, six months later, they got back to me and asked me to come in for uh, an interview. Carlos had to pass a number of tests to make sure that he could physically do the work, and he eventually got the job. The position I picked uh, originally was a parts person to deliver parts. Um, then they told me that that was unavailable, so that I wasn't be picking up garbage and trash around the factory, which I said, okay, I really didn't want to do, but I would do it just to get my foot in the door. And then eventually they said they were going to just put me on the assembly line. Carlos says he started work at Tesla in September of 2017, right as the company was trying to scale production of the Model 3, and well before there was ever any talk of a tent. But as someone who had never worked on a vehicle assembly line, Carlos says the first day was a lot to take in. Oh my god, it was overwhelming seeing all these big machinery and people moving fast and uh, not really realizing that I had to be uh, cautious everywhere through the factory because everything is electric, so you can't hear the forklifts, you can't hear the trams, you can't hear any of the moving vehicles through the plant, so it was kind of like, you know, with the noisy as it was in there, you can't hear those things and they whiz right by you. Um, this factory was huge, and I've never been into a plant before like that at all, and so just being able to look around and kind of like what did I get myself into kind of thing. 
and we'll be back with more Supercharged after this quick break. When Carlos started on the assembly line, he said he was working on a fairly simple task that involved putting the chrome mouldings over the door. It was a simple operation where you came, the car came to your station. Um, you just put the molding piece. You put the first uh, eleven grommets in. You put the molding piece. You screwed the eleven shots that need to be uh, into the molding, and then that was it. And the car would go on to the next station. But when I first started, when the Model Three first took off. Um, we were doing probably maybe like four cars a day. Carlos says the initial days he worked an eight-hour shift. However, as those four cars quickly became 50 and then eventually 120, he suddenly found himself working 12-hour shifts, although he didn't mind because the pay was really good. He says he loved working at Tesla and the team that was around him were really friendly. Management was really great at the time. Uh, supervisors were great. The, man, the main managers of the, running the factory shifts were, were great. The people I worked with, um, I loved. But as time went on and the more cars were pushed, it just seemed like everybody kind of lost that friendliness. Everybody kind of lost that camaraderie. And it's just like we just went backwards and it kind of hurt everybody. As Tesla started to prepare for the new GA4 production line in 2018, Carlos says there were a lot of people hoping to use that as an opportunity to move up in the ranks. He applied and was hoping to become a lead. It meant more responsibility and an increase in pay. Uh, my boss came up and told me because I wanted to go and I was just I kind of gave up to it. I lost heart because I seen everybody going out there and they were getting promoted and. Um, so I kind of got upset, and I just kind of was just like, I guess, just in a bad mood for a couple of days. And my boss when I come over, he said, "What's wrong?" I said, "Well, I would love to go out to you know GA4." You know, he said, "Oh yeah, you, well, your transfer's already waiting for you. We just gotta wait for the end of the week." And then he told me uh, the beginning or the end of uh, of May that I was gonna be heading out there into uh, probably around the middle of June. So uh, when I went out there, I was kind of surprised. It only took me about two and a half weeks. And they made me lead, uh, which finally got me the promotion that I wanted. Um, so, And that's how I started out there. Carlos says the transition to the open-air tent meant that there was a lot of figuring out how to do tasks that, in the main factory, had been done by a robot. Because there was a lot of parts that were heavy, and we had to figure out how to put the the dashboard in, how to how to put a few other uh, components into the car without hurting people because uh, the robot would just pick it up, push it right in, and we would just be able to shoot the shots and or bolt anything down. And now it was just trying to figure out how we were going to um, kind of manually manhandle these things in there. As the Model 3 production ramped up, Carlos found himself doing night shifts, and Elon Musk had even tweeted that he was sleeping on the factory floor at Fremont. And Carlos says that staff were scared of Elon when he would turn up to inspect their work. Uh, amongst my peers and the people that worked for me, uh, it was kind of crazy for them because they didn't believe that he was there. It was always like a myth, a rumor. Um, I have kind of worked with him off and on a little bit, just on plans and things that he wanted done. Uh, not really person to person kind of thing, but... Um, just some plans that he had handed down to he wanted me to work on. And so I, with a, at one point we had a thermal bar issue, which keeps the battery cool, and the robot stopped working. 
And so we had to figure out a way how to do that. And so we eventually we came up with a with a process of putting the thermal bars in manually, which was kind of a risky because it's a, it's a it's a lot to do. It's a heavy thing. It's 40, 50 pounds, and lifting 40, 50 pounds about 90 times a night puts you in a lot in a lot of risk of being hurt or pulling muscles uh, and just getting hurt in general. And so that's a one of the things we did, but when they would uh, see him come, everybody would kind of be afraid. Everybody would get to work. The managers would come and tell us, hey, look, Elon's coming down. He's checking our work. Uh, make sure that, you know, everything's clean. Everything, you guys are doing your work. No one's on the phone. And it was kind of a thing that everybody was just really afraid when he would come into the tent. The open air structure also meant workers were exposed to the elements, whether that be cold weather or even smoke from wildfires nearby. When there was fires and things like that, you would smell the smoke. Uh, when it gets cold outside, you definitely would freeze during the summertime. They would have to bring out swamp coolers to keep us cool down. Um, it was a lot different than the factory. The factory where we didn't have any of this stuff because the factory had a filter, would filter out smoke. Uh, it wasn't really cold. It wasn't really hot, uh, except for the few couple of days that we were really hot in Fremont uh, when I started first off on the job. I believe it was around 105 and maybe about 110 in the factory. The things workers told me besides working through the smoke, um, that poor air quality without good air filtration masks, at least on the first day and even after that, if these kind of paper masks you see at the hardware store, you know, like um, if those didn't fit you, you just worked without, you know, you couldn't bring in your own more sophisticated equipment because it had to be given to you by Tesla eventually. um, And it wasn't available immediately. It was after a bunch of people complained. Um, And, you know, it wasn't if those particular uh, face masks didn't fit you. So some people who are more petite, like that that wouldn't stay on their face. Or uh, some people who are larger than these, like kind of one size fits all, didn't feel good to keep it on. And so they just worked without. Laura's story also detailed a number of issues with the quality of work being sent through the production line. There are photos of electrical tape being used to fix problems and vehicles being let down the assembly line with bolts not torqued down correctly. I had photographs from multiple sources. There were more photos than you saw published that we shared with Tesla um, to get their responses. There were, um, you know, we we spent ample time with Tesla waiting for their uh, responses to that story. And, you know, what what we were able to verify we published. Um, What we couldn't verify, we didn't publish. Some of the photos are included in Laura's CNBC story, which we'll link to in the show notes of this episode. I should add that in coming forward, workers were certainly placing their careers at risk if Tesla were to ever find out. The company does have a history of going after whistleblowers who share information with the media. An employee who worked on vehicle testing at Tesla told me that that should confirm some of the reports at Culture at the company, and that their only regret was, quote, staying longer than the one month it took to revamp my resume. Another former staffer at Tesla's European plant in the Netherlands told me that the workload was significant and that they would be getting to work early and coming in on weekends to keep up with the pace. And it seems the experience at the Netherlands office is somewhat more positive than on the assembly line at Fremont. This staffer told me that despite the workload created by Tesla's rapid expansion through Europe, workers were genuinely excited whenever Elon would show up. For Carlos Aranda, though, his positive experience at Tesla changed when he was injured on the job. 
Carlos says he was working in alignment and got plantar fasciitis in his feet after having to jump in and out of vehicles all day. He dealt with this for a few months, however in December of 2018, his hands became injured from some of the repetitive work he was doing. We had special torque wrenches to uh, untorque the wheel so that we could get the proper reading uh, of the wheels. We set them straight, uh, put the little electric boots on to uh, meter them, and sometimes my guys would uh, actually torque them too tight with a torque wrench, and so we didn't have enough time. I would have to go in there with a the little crescent wrench and untorque them. And you're talking about something that you know a robot would have done, uh, kind of strength. Um, they're done in newt meters, which in you know a regular basis, you know, you're talking about a lot of torque. Uh, somewhere probably around 12 to you know 1200 up uh, in torque to uh, to torque these uh, bolts on, and so I would have to go in with a wrench and kind of loosen them and do that over and over and over again. When I finally felt uh, a sharp pinch in my left wrist and kind of hurt for a while, so you know I took some time out, told my guys go ahead take my place, you know, and then. I went back in and told my manager, I said, hey, look, uh, my wrist hurts. Uh, I need to see the nurse. And that's uh, part of Tesla's policies. When you get hurt, they send you to the clinic there on site and you get seen. Carlos says Tesla provided him with some initial support by way of a therapist. However, he had to take a leave of absence from his job. And in January 2019, he was able to see a doctor. Um, went on leave, seen my doctor. My doctor said I had a carpal tunnel in the both wrist and cubital. Uh, in my elbows, which is a part, is is a really painful thing to you know where you can't sleep at night, you it's hard to do anything basic again, and that's kind of uh, the beginning of the injury status from uh, when I got injured. Over the next several months, Carlos worked on his recovery and was hoping that he would eventually go back to work. However, the recovery was taking longer than expected. His wife Maggie also worked on the production line, so the family still had one stream of income. However, with his mounting medical expenses, Carlos says at one point they were $5,000 behind in rent, and in June they had to give up their home. Around the same time, Maggie was fired from her position at Tesla due to cell phone usage, which Carlos says was because she was helping to organise appointments for his care. The pair even started a GoFundMe to help cover their expenses. But it was Maggie's firing that was the last straw for Carlos. On June 18, he posted a tweet that said, quote, I'm so sick of Tesla giving me the runaround. I'm about to quit and burn them to the ground. With what I know, I can put a big monkey wrench in the works. And on June 24, he emailed through his resignation to the Tesla HR team. Tesla told us they fired him, but we had all the evidence to the contrary. Um, He showed me the email that he had resigned. Uh, It was dated. He showed me that Tesla emailed him within a day or a few days saying, we expect you back at work on Wednesday, you know. So they clearly hadn't processed the resignation up to whatever management, HR, etc. And then only after he reminded them he had resigned did they send him some kind of correspondence saying, oh, you're, you're dismissed, right? We looked at all that, and so we reported that he said he resigned, and we saw that email, and um, that's what it looked like. I've also seen copies of these emails, and they do support Carlos's version of events. 
why did Tesla say that they fired him? Um, they said that he posted something on social media that violated their workplace, one of their policies or another. Um, and it was some hot-headed tweet or social media post. Um, they didn't, you know, provide any evidence they had actually fired him, though. And they may have very well been limited to what they could disclose uh, because of, you know, HR and confidentiality stuff. But, but again, I had his resignation email an email from his management saying, we expect you back at the factory, you know, to do this. I had more emails showing that he said, hey, by the way, I already resigned, so I don't know why you're sending me this. And, yeah, I was sitting there looking over all this stuff with him in person, you know, doing an interview, which, again, I had reached out many, many months before at the start of the year, and it took almost a half a year before he was ready to talk. When I spoke with Carlos, he and his wife Maggie were living in their car, a 2015 Nissan Altima. He said they would park outside the Great America theme park where they both had annual passes, so that way they had somewhere they could go to get food and have a shower. After resigning, Carlos also had what appeared to be an issue with his heart, so he had to go to hospital for a couple of days. This hospital trip significantly increased his medical expenses. I've seen evidence of these hospital bills, and the most recent medical bill they sent me was for $24,000. However, I've just learned that both Carlos and Maggie have been able to find new jobs, and are slowly beginning the process of working their way out of debt. I also want to be clear, I'm not saying that the same experience Carlos had is the norm at Tesla. But there are many reports from different news outlets that document the experience of employees who have been injured on the production lines. I'll link to a few of them in the show notes. Tesla has tens of thousands of staff. However, when you're growing quickly, it can be easy to overlook the basics. And a company of that size should certainly do whatever they can to look after their staff. The Model 3 may have caused production hell for Tesla, but it also inspired many across the automotive sector to take EVs seriously. So how does the competition stack up? That's coming up right after this break. Pretty much like any other Hyundai, in, in, like it's just a normal Hyundai sedan style yep. car, really. But when it takes off, you'll notice that there's no uh, <laughs> no engine sound. It's it, it's still got that nice new car smell. It does, yeah, yeah. It's a nice new, new car, which is always good. This is Anthony Aegis. Anthony writes about tech for a living. He runs a newsletter called The Sizzle and writes for websites like Drive Zero. And we've just jumped into his EV. But unlike the other people we've spoken with in this series, Anthony doesn't drive a Tesla. He drives a Hyundai Ioniq. So it's just, yeah, like driving it, it's, you know, you, it's not like you're in a spaceship, like in a Tesla kind of thing, fancy and luxury car, but it's it's a lot smoother than, smoother to drive than a petrol car. And it's when I go from petrol, from an electric car to a, to a petrol car, it's like driving a tractor. 
Like it's, it's just feels so rough and vibrations and which I never noticed until I owned an, an, an electric car. But it's, it's, you really notice the difference when you've um, uh, driven one for, for a while and gotten used to it. I mean, it, I guess it, I guess it kind of like changes, changes your relationship somewhat with vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, well, the only thing I've noticed is I actually tend to drive more because it costs so little to um uh, to to drive, and it's like, well, why not drive there? <laughs> Over the petrol car, it's like, well, all right, I gotta you know, pay for pe- pay for petrol. I know that the carbon emissions are are, are not good. Whereas with electric cars, like, well, there's no carbon emissions if I charge from my solar panels, and the power costs like 19 cents a kilowatt hour compared to a dollar fifty a litre for fuel. All right, I'll go and go and drive there. <laughs> Tesla's ambition in the EV space has certainly inspired the whole industry to take notice. Every car manufacturer is working on some kind of electric vehicle, with popular competitors to the Model 3 being the Nissan Leaf, the Chevy Bolt, and the Hyundai Ioniq. However, Tesla still holds the lead when it comes to range and charging infrastructure. So what kind of range can you get on this? This one you get about 200, 200 kilometres. So 200 kilometres. Um, on the freeway you get a bit less. So if, if, if I drive to Ballarat from here, I get about 180 or so. Whereas if I'm driving to Melbourne, I'll get about 220, 230. So I kind of estimate for most of the time about two, about 200 kilometres. Which is not, it's not a whole lot, but it's also a significantly cheaper vehicle than buying a Tesla. That's right. I mean, I would prefer like 300 or, or, or 350 because I've noticed like there's, there's, there's not enough charging stations around Australia to actually like go on those long trips. Um, I kind of have to plan. I can't go more than really 100 kilometres from home <laughs> unless there's a, a charger somewhere along the way. And there's a few like slow chargers, like, like the one that I have at home. They take about, you know, two, three hours to put more power into the battery, but not those rapid chargers that can do about like, you know, a full battery in 20 minutes. They're, there's about 60 in Australia at the moment. And that's obviously not enough for... <laughs> You know, a country the size of Australia and the population of of, uh, of 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 Australia. As we mentioned in episode one, Tesla's supercharger network is one of the huge drawcards to owning a Tesla, with more than sixteen hundred supercharger locations around the world. Each of these locations might have multiple superchargers, meaning there are more than fourteen thousand five hundred in total and Tesla have been very strategic as to where those superchargers are placed. In Australia, for instance, the rollout initially focused on popular driving routes, such as Sydney to Melbourne, to make sure that Tesla owners could get between Australia's most populous cities. When people talk about EVs, often the topic of range anxiety comes up. I've spoken with a lot of Tesla owners, and for many of them, range anxiety is not really a problem. The combination of longer battery range and the vast amount of charging points means that owning a Tesla doesn't result in the same kind of anxiety that exists with other manufacturers. I, I get home with about 20 kilometers of range lift, so you're, you're kind of cutting it close when you know you should have a lot more battery than, than that because um, you know, 200 kilometers, 120 kilometer round trip should leave me should leave me home with about 80 left. 
but, but, but I get home in real world with about 20 to 30, which is, you know, un, un, unless you plan for that, you, you could be left stranded. Ford is one company that has realised the importance of having places to charge and has been rolling out their Ford Pass network. They're basically rolling out some of their own charging stations along with forming partnerships with other providers like Electrify America to deliver more than 12,000 charging locations across North America. In Australia, ChargeFox have been rolling out their own charging network, mainly on the East Coast. And in New South Wales, the NRMA are installing 40 fast charging locations around the state. But a lot of the problems with range anxiety can certainly be solved with improved competition and performance from Tesla's competitors. In recent months, we've seen other players enter the market, including Porsche with their Taycan, an electric that will have around 250 miles, or 400 kilometres of range, and do 0-60 in just 2.8 seconds. The Porsche Taycan is clearly designed to be a competitor to the new Tesla Roadster, which is due to be released in 2020. Then there's the Ford Mustang Mach-E, which will have a 300-mile or 480-kilometre range and do 0-60 in a bit over 3 seconds. An all-electric, zero-emission game-changer, delivering guilt-free performance for the next generation of thrill-seekers. The newest member of the Mustang family. Mustang Mach-E. The Mach-E seems a competitor to Tesla's Model Y SUV, which is due to hit the US market in 2020. Although the Model Y can be configured with a long-range version that can reach a slightly higher 335 miles or 540 kilometer range. Volkswagen are also looking at EVs as a path away from their diesel emissions disaster. In 2020, they're planning to release the ID, a small, almost beetle-like car that can do 600 kilometres on a single charge, and the ID Cross SUV, which can do 500 kilometres. And in 2022, they'll also have the ID Buzz, which is clearly modelled off the old combis. Jaguar have the I-Pace, which can do 470 kilometres, and Hyundai also have the Kona Electric, which can do more than 400 kilometres. And then, of course, we have the trucks, with Ford talking about bringing an electric version of their popular F-150 to market within a few years, and EV startup Rivian are also entering the truck market. It's a uh, pickup truck that uh, performs like a sports car, does well off-road, and has a range of a gas vehicle. How cool is that, right? It's going to transform mobility in many ways, and that's part of the bigger picture of Rivian. There's a big Rivian's R1T is designed to be a clear competitor to Ford's F-150, with 400 miles of range and all the features that you expect in an adventure vehicle. And then we have Tesla's Cybertruck. Welcome to the Cybertruck unveil. Yeah! Trucks have been the same for a very long time. Elon proceeds to show a bunch of photos of the existing trucks on the market before telling audiences about the importance of Tesla having a pickup. We have to, if to solve sustainable energy, we have to have a pickup truck. So I present to you the Cybertruck. I was sort of reporting from the live stream, right? And 
My instinct usually when there's breaking news is publish quick. He's Laura Kolodny. But initially, I wasn't certain if, like, the sides of that thing were going to fall off and reveal, like, some more traditional-looking, at least by Tesla standards, vehicle. And then, you know, I kind of... I kind of smiled and and saw it as what it is, which is, hey, it's a if you can't, you know, it's Elon will never say if you can't beat him, join him. He's going to try and beat him every time, right? And not like I know the guy personally, but just from my observations of the way he does business. And so, with F one fifty, an electric version of the F one fifty pending, and other EV pickups coming to the market, like Rivian has got the backing of Amazon, and there are some others in the works, hybrid and pure battery electric. I think Tesla said, "Let's just do Tesla. Let's go completely distinct." Gamer culture resonates. You know, let's let's go for the design that our people love, um, and we'll do the features that we think we can do best. And I mean, it's just a prototype. There's no way that's a production vehicle, and um, and it's it, it was a lot of fun for people. Uh, I I almost understand why they did it that way. There's part of me that thinks they're um, they're giving up a chance to make and sell a, a more popular vehicle. This is more like a Hummer, right? It's like a, a truck bro truck. Like it's it's for flashy, um, flashy kind of marks of distinction. It's not really, it doesn't sound all that utilitarian necessarily. We'll see. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to prejudge uh, to this extent, but it's, it's, um, it was, it was a fun reveal Almost as soon as Cybertruck hit the stage, the memes began. Cybertruck has been compared to a low bitrate version of a regular truck, with its clean lines and flat edges, along with its stainless steel body that can supposedly stop a bullet. And they demonstrated this by having lead designer Franz von Holzhausen hit it with a sledgehammer. Uh, uh, Don't hold back. The windows were also meant to be armoured glass, and Tesla made a point of dropping a ball on various panes of glass to see how Tesla's glass would stack up. All was going to plan until Franz threw a metal ball into the window of the Cybertruck on stage, and the windows suddenly cracked. Sure? Yeah. Oh my fucking god. Well, maybe that was a little too hard. He then threw it at the rear window, and they also cracked. Oh, man. It didn't go through. (laughs) Now, I don't believe that the smashed windows were a PR stunt. However, it certainly worked. Even the Australian Broadcasting Corporation covered the announcement, and usually they would have ignored it for reasons of bias. It now seems Tesla has a huge task on their hands to build another production line to suit this unique vehicle. With Elon claiming there have been more than 250,000 reservations, although as Laura points out, these are very different from the reservations of the past, where people had to put down a significant deposit. The layperson, you know, maybe someone who's really in, uh, like sharp on business but not following Tesla's uh, kind of saga of pre-orders, reservations, you know, um, all these things which have changed over time. So you have no apples to apples comparisons, virtually vehicle to vehicle for Tesla. Um, 
they wouldn't necessarily parse a pre-order as just like a little refundable fee you put down that's just a hundred bucks and it doesn't commit you to anything. It doesn't commit Tesla to anything. They don't they don't have to deliver you this vehicle. They don't have to ever even make the vehicle. Your hundred bucks is refundable. From everything we've learned about Tesla, it's clear that they are unlike any other car manufacturer. So is Tesla actually a car company? Are they a tech company? Or are they a battery company? They better be a car company. I mean, that's, you know, 4,000 pounds plus of, you know, vehicle vaulting down the street. And if they're not a car company, that's... uh, If they don't have a car company mentality, um, in addition to the tech company mentality, it's just doesn't bode well. Um, so I think they have come to realize they're as much a car company. But like I said, the, the you know, I think Elon was a software guy. <laughs> I mean, he's also an aerospace guy, but um, his early success was in software. And uh, so I think that that and the just the start of the company here in Silicon Valley, um, it was tech, you know, hardware, hardware and software both, but um, still tech. They, they act like a tech company business model-wise. I, I hope they've come to realize um, they need to also embrace the best of automotive practices for manufacturing, safety, safety testing, you name it. Coming up in the next episode of Supercharged, Tesla's vehicles are full of technology, and one component of that is causing a lot of controversy. So I use self-driving in any potential opportunity I have. We've driven about 120,000 kilometres without my hands on the wheel. They've made a big bet that, you know, ultimately more lives will be saved by getting this into the hands of consumers earlier rather than later. And that comes with enormous risks. If they were pursuing this approach to autonomy as a research project, that would be fine. What they're doing, though, is actually product development. Supercharged is a production of Lawson Media and is hosted by me, Christopher Lawson. Mixing and production by James Parkinson. Jasmine Mee Lee is our assistant producer. Andrew Millist created our artwork. And Nick Buchanan composed our theme track. Other music in this episode from Breakmaster Cylinder and our ad music comes from Epidemic Sound. For more information about the series or to find episode transcripts and sources, head to chargedshow.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Charged Show. If you're enjoying this series, then I encourage you to share it with your friends. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can do so at our website. Thanks for listening.